Before I begin the sermon, I just want to take a minute and say thank you to all those who were able to attend Luca's celebration of life yesterday. Um, it was a wonderful service, and God was honored. As you and I read the Bible and begin to understand it, we're going to encounter truths that contradict what we hear around us every day, which you might call generally accepted wisdom. Let me give you two examples. We're told that true freedom comes when you remove all constraints. We're told true freedom comes when you remove all constraints. The Bible tells us that true freedom is found not in the removing of all constraints, but in submitting to God. Again, to our regular wisdom, that sounds backwards. But true freedom, you find out in the Bible, is the, is the freedom to be and to do what we were made by God to be and do. Another, admitting my need for God doesn't result in being rejected by God. Often in our relationships, we're going to be very reluctant to talk about our needs and failures with other people because the more we talk about it, the more likely we are, we think, for them to say, you know what, go find somebody else. For us, admitting our need for God doesn't result in being rejected by God, but actually in finding the strength and the wisdom and all that we need in God because it's that strength and wisdom are things that you and I do not have on our own. Now, over the last several weeks, we have briefly looked at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, and we looked at the dangers that are either stated directly or implied in each of those letters. And all of those dangers apply to us today because they're common to all Christian churches and to all people, all Christians. Just remember this. Those seven dangers are not the only spiritual dangers that we face, and there's more application. There's more things we can do in the face of these dangers than what I have talked about already. The dangers do something uh, else that I want to talk about today. They show us our failures. I mean, we look at them and you read the various letters, like the, the one we did last week to the, to the people in Laodicea, and you, sometimes you can think, like I have thought before, what a bunch of losers. I mean, how, how can you mess up that bad? Oh, my goodness, just look in the mirror. It's easy to find out. The dangers show us our failures where we have not listened to God and we have forgotten God, we have not obeyed and just go down the list. Now, to be clear, it is not enjoyable at all to look at those failures and to admit them. But again, here's again this kind of a, what seems to be a contradiction. Seeing and admitting our failures and then turning to God is the only path to true hope and to real spiritual change. You might think, oh, yeah, okay, so nobody's perfect, I'm not perfect. And here, after reading those letters, I can see where I have missed a few things. So let me just start working really, really hard. And if I work really, really hard, I will get all that and God will smile at me. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. It's not there. Well, this list of dangers that I've talked about is in the sermon supplement, and we're going to walk through them briefly here in just a minute. And I've chosen three of the dangers to focus on today, and I gave the title of the sermon, The Greatest Dangers. This morning I was thinking, you know, that probably wasn't the best title. 
Because they're not the greatest dangers necessarily, but they are great dangers. They are significant dangers, I believe, for us in our time and in our circumstance. So let's read the scriptures from Revelation, from the letters that go to these three dangers. We'll be reading together Revelation 2, verse 4, Revelation 3, verse 8, Revelation 3, verse 17. So remain seated. Let's read together from the screen. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Then I know that you have but little power... For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, as I just mentioned, I want to walk briefly through the seven dangers because I'd like you to kind of have them in mind and recognize, too, that they're not all separate. They kind of overlap. You'll see how they overlap or intermingle. So the first of the dangers is doing what is right without a right attitude. So here we're talking about doing what God tells us to, but losing or diminishing our love for God or our love for others somewhere along the way. And we're going to look at this a little bit more in a minute. Second danger is the fear of suffering. Now, none of us enjoy suffering. If a person does, everybody thinks there's got to be something wrong. Okay, we'd rather avoid suffering, but Jesus, what we see in the Bible is that God and Jesus do not take away all suffering. They don't prevent it all, and so suffering is a part of our lives. And trusting God means that we accept what God brings into our lives, both the things we enjoy and the suffering. And if you and I focus on ourselves, we're not going to trust God when it looks like suffering is coming. We're going to work to avoid it. We're going to work to avoid losing our comforts. Third danger is compromise. You and I can compromise in many areas of our lives, even while trying to obey God and others. And you know, because it's natural for us to think, I want to do better and I want to look better to God, that can be a very frustrating truth. It's like, how am I ever going to get ahead? Here I am working on these things, and now you're telling me, oh, but you might be slipping over here. Well, here's what I mean by compromise. It compromise is when you and I know what God says is right, what he tells us to do, but we choose not to do it. And I'll give you an example. We should speak kindly to our family all the time. And by that, I do not mean that what God says is just be nice. God tells us to love others, to work for peace, to sacrifice and give to others, to do them good. All that's wrapped up in speaking kindly to our family. But all of us know there are times we are unhappy. And maybe you're unhappy with the person you're talking to. Or maybe it's somebody else in the family. Or it could be something totally different. You brought it home from talking to a neighbor or from work. But you're unhappy and you know what? You speak out of that unhappiness and you're angry and you're harsh when you know you shouldn't be. That's an example of compromising, knowing what we should do, what God says to do, and we don't. And here's the reminder. Any area of compromise affects all the other areas of our life. 
You, you cannot compartmentalize sin. You just can't keep it contained. In the fourth letter, the letter is not telling us to not tolerate any evil at all. The danger is knowingly tolerating evil in the Christian church. And you see in, this, in the fourth letter and at least one other that part of the tolerating going on is tolerating false teaching. And you, we might be thinking, oh, well, I, I don't think it's happening here, and I sure hope it isn't. I, th I think we're good on that side of things. But here's, so that's uh, kind of a less likely thing that can happen, but still possible. But here's one that is a lot more common. And that is seeing another Christian in the church do something that looks to you like it might be sin, and then you do nothing about it. I think all of us have been there. At times, God gives us eyes to see somebody else. We see somebody speaking. We see something that is that they're doing. And our first thought is, you know what? I don't want to get involved. Don't want to go there. When God actually gave you the eyes to see so that you can go at least ask, find out what's happening. And if, if need be, talk to them about, very humbly, about what is going on. Now, here's the balance part. <clears throat> you and I are not called to be the sin police. Okay? God is the sin police. It's His Spirit that convicts people of sin. Sometimes He uses somebody else in our lives. Sometimes He does it directly. The fifth danger is focusing on my reputation in a way that I'm not living the Christian life the way that God calls us to. Now, when you read the Bible, one of the things you see very clearly that, again, goes against our modern-day thinking, is God does not flatter us in the least to boost our self-esteem. Okay? He, he just does not go there at all. God presents Christians with two truths related to our reputation. Probably others as well, but I just want to highlight two of them. First one is, you and I are worse sinners than we ever dared imagine. We are spiritually corrupt in every part of our being. That is not encouraging to your ego in the least. But here's the second, and it's not encouraging either, not to our ego. God chooses to love us and accept us anyway. Not because of anything good in us, but He does choose to love us and accept us. Which means there is no room in the Christian life for self-glory or building our own reputation, our own record. The sixth. Anybody getting depressed yet? Okay. We get, we're touched by all, every one of these. A flawed self-perception. Now here's a connection from the previous one. Sin has corrupted everything in us, including how we see ourselves. So the question we need to ask is, how does God see us? And he tells us. He tells us that all people are needy and flawed and broken by sin which means on the one hand, needy, we are not independent of God. And secondly, we are not basically good. So Christians, being needy and flawed, have that side of things, but also we're loved and accepted and being changed by God. And this two-part view is so important because if you and I ignore either part or both, you get trouble. And then the last one, being too easily satisfied. 
God gives us every good thing that we enjoy. And he gave them to us for us to enjoy. But only God can provide us ultimate, eternal, and lasting satisfaction. And it's only found in him. And too often we settle for less. And here's how we do it. We focus on the gifts and we ignore the giver. A little bit like what Barry was talking about uh, with his offertory talk. We focus on the gifts that God gives us. We ignore the giver. Now, the verses that we just read a few minutes ago match dangers 1, 6, and 7. And what I want to do is just dig a little bit deeper in them and then look at some of Jesus' remedies. So, danger number one, doing what is right without a right attitude. The people that make up the Harvester Church come from many different backgrounds. Some Presbyterian or Baptist or Lutheran or Methodist or Roman Catholic or not churched at all. All kinds. But Harvester Church is Presbyterian, which means its background is Reformed and Protestant, and I'm putting those two together, and PCA. In the 1500s and later, Protestants and Reformers stepped away from the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church because the church had drifted from the Bible. Now, this is not unique. Every church and every denomination is subject to spiritual drift. These people were called Protestants because, you can guess, they protested some of the actions of the Roman Catholic Church. They were called Reformers because the word reform has to do with change. And they wanted to make changes from within the church, but were not able to, so they made their changes after they stepped away from the church. Well, in 1973, the PCA, the churches that became the PCA, stepped away from the Southern Presbyterian Church because of changes that had occurred within the denomination that they had tried to correct and were unable to. And so they said, we're going to step away. And you see, this has already happened more recently in other denominations, Christian groups as well. Here's the danger. Whenever you step away from another group, and especially you're stepping away with the desire for your theology and your practice to line up with the Bible, that is, you want to do what is right, and you know that at least in some ways what you're stepping away from is not in line with the Bible, it's easy and it's so subtle to assume that I'm pursuing what is right, and then you, you assume that you're right in all that you're doing. But here's what can happen. When you focus so much on being, what is do, being right and doing what is right, it's easy to lose the wonder of God's mercy and forgiveness and His grace. Because you see, part of our nature that we're born with, if we believe in God, there's a part of us that wants to earn God's favor, to be good enough to do good. And we can easily turn God's good news, let me just pause here and remind you, a news is a report of what someone has done. God's good news is the report of what God has done, but we can so easily turn that into a list of do's and don'ts. And then it is so easy then to look at other people in terms of that list of do's and don'ts. Instead, of our common need for God's mercy and forgiveness and grace that we all have. 
Because what God does very clearly in the Bible is he levels the field. When he says, all have sinned, there is none righteous, he's saying, none of you are better than anybody else. In that first letter, as Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus, they were doing much good. And he wrote and he listed several of the things they were doing. And then he had the but. But you've abandoned your first love, your love for God. And that danger is still dangerous to us. Because we have this background being reformed in PCA, wanting to do what is right. But we're also doing it in a time we're in this place where our society is rapidly moving away from Christian principles and truths. And it is so easy when you're saying, I'm, uh, not only have to have, do I have to fight me to try to do what is right, but then I've got all of this influence going outside of me. And it's so easy then in the middle of all that, in, in fighting for what is true and trying to do what is right, to lose the wonder of God's mercy and grace to see those people who disagree with us as the enemy and then to condemn them in our words and our thoughts that's the first danger the second a flawed self-perception as a Christian an accurate self-perception is a combination of what I call ugly truth and beautiful truth both are good for us Though, again, the ugly is hard on the ego. The ugly truth is that every one of us have a self-serving, self-focused, rebellious nature. The beautiful truth is God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness and all the gifts that he gives us. And what we tend to do is minimize the ugly truth. Oh, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I'm not that bad. And then we assume that we deserve the beautiful truth. An accurate self-perception not only needs God's word, but we also it also needs input from other people because of the self-deceiving nature of sin. Have you ever been to a carnival and went to the carnival mirror show where you walk through? And in some of them, your waist up is this big and your legs are this big. Okay, that's a carnival mirror. It distorts. And without God's truth and without other people speaking into our lives, we end up with a distorted view of ourselves. But not only do we need that input, we also need the humility to receive correction from others and from God. Without this combination of ugly and beautiful truth, there are a number of traps that we can fall into. Let me just mention two. I've already actually said it. And that is that we think we're better than we are. I'm doing good. The other trap that some people fall into, and all of us can fall into at times, is to say, oh no, I just, I sinned one too many times. That sin was just too big. God cannot forgive me. I have slipped too far. I have no more hope. There, God tells us his his forgiveness covers our sin. You know, Paul basically says, he didn't put it this way because they didn't talk like this back then, but he basically said, look at me, I'm the poster child for God's forgiveness. I was the most arrogant, stuck-up, 
religious snob there ever was. And in my religious snobbishness, I killed people. I killed Christians. Delighted to see them die and to see Christians put in prison. And now God's showing me the truth. That's his family. Those were my brothers and sisters. And I killed them. And God forgave me. We can be forgiven. We need this right biblical self-perception. And then finally, being too easily satisfied. If you've noticed in the last two weeks, you've heard this thing about five or six times. I'm going to hit it one more time. In our broken human nature, it is so easy for us to focus on what is immediately around us, what we can see and hear and touch and taste and smell, than it is to focus on spiritual reality. And one result when that happens is we're so easily distracted from our relationship with God. And we're also then, as being distracted, we start looking for satisfaction because God made us to look for satisfaction. But the only place we're going to find real satisfaction because He made us eternal beings is with God and having a right relationship with God. Only that will give us eternal lasting satisfaction and gives us something else, a right perspective so that we can actually enjoy all the good gifts that God gives us without forgetting the giver. Now, what do we do? What can we do to avoid these dangers? For our hope and our cure, let's look at some of the remedies that Jesus gave. And I'm going to lump them under something you don't hear talked about a lot, but I want to mention it today, and that is spiritual renewal. When I say renewal, I mean being refreshed, being re-energized, and being reoriented. If you've ever done any kind of sports uh, and you've gotten a cold Gatorade or some other kind of sports drink, and it was oh so good. Quenched your thirst. As you drank it, you just kind of almost feel the energy just kind of coming back into you again. Spiritual renewal is like that without the Gatorade. Our need for spiritual renewal is constant. The world that we live in never rests from encouraging us to move away from God and turn away. The flesh that is in us, what the Bible calls the flesh, this nature that we have that is so selfish, it never sleeps. It yells, it whispers, it pulls, it tugs. There isn't a moment while you and I are on this earth that we don't need God's work in us, His Spirit working in us. You could think of the world and the flesh as like streams of poison in our lives that we cannot shut off. What we need is this spiritual renewal, this regular reading of God's Word and depending on God's Spirit and praying and praising God to counteract the poison and then to foster what is good and true and lovely in us. So these remedies that we're going to look at are not just one-time remedies. They're not just occasional. They're not breaking just a case of emergency remedies. These are ones that should be part of our lives ongoing. And so the first of those remedies is remembering. Remember and wake up and do the first works, as it says in that first letter. What it means is remember and delight in God's mercy, His love, 
his care. And the whole idea is be deliberate. Work to foster and encourage in yourself a love for God and an awe for God. And here's some things that can help you do this. Daily, look at both the ugly truth and the beautiful truth together. Remind yourself daily of your need for God. Remind yourself daily of God's love and care and forgiveness and all that He gives you. Then, read the Bible regularly with a focus on the ugly and the beautiful. When I began doing that, I was amazed that the ugly and the beautiful is right there on the pages. You don't have to dig deep. It's right there. It's almost like you're looking for gold and you walk out and there it is on the ground. Chunk and chunk and chunk and chunk of gold. It's there. So I'd encourage you to start with New Testament letters like Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. In fact, I'll just give you this little assignment. Either later today or sometime this week, read Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses, and then just get a piece of paper and list all that God does for us and all that God gives us. It's amazing when you look at the list. So as you read the Bible and begin saying, God, help me to read with the ugly and the beautiful truth there. In addition to that, if you can, find a devotional. And I can tell you that I have been helped so much personally myself by Paul Tripp's devotional, New Morning Mercies, because in so often, so often he presents the ugly truth and the beautiful truth side by side. One short little page, kind of a half-page thing per day, and yet it gives you so much to think on and, and to remember as you look at it. And then finally on this, ask God to make you enraptured and thrilled and delighted with Him. The second one is really brief. Repent. Just remember the word turn. Every time you and I turn away from God, and we do every time we chase our own desires, Repent means to turn back to God. He calls us to repent, to turn back to Him. And remember, His arms are wide open and they're welcoming. And then thirdly, hold fast. You'll find that Jesus says that to the churches, I think at least twice, two different churches. Hold fast what you have. Well, here's the thing. You and I cannot hold fast. We cannot be faithful in our own strength. Just, you know, gritting your teeth, it just doesn't work. So, ask God to work in you. Ask God to enable you to hold fast to His truth and love. And then, work at it. Be deliberate. Claim God's promises. Remind yourself of God's promises. For example, God says He will never leave you or forsake you. He tells Christians He will never allow Christians to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear as you depend on Him. That's another exercise. It's one I started and I have not finished got distracted from it actually and that is walk through the New Testament walk through the Bible and start listing God's promises and see what they are see who he says it to see if he gives conditions look at it list it out and see his promises there are a lot of them for us to look at and then run from temptation surround yourself with spiritual helps and commit yourself. Do you want to obey God's commands? And remember that commitment, especially when you don't feel like it. And what you'll find is, 
there's actually a lot of times you really don't, if you're honest with yourself, you don't feel like doing what God says. I don't feel like it. But he says, you know what? You're not a slave to your feelings. Not if you're a Christian. His Spirit's there working in us. We can follow Him. And we can lean on Him. The last one. Depending on God. This remedy is, is not stated directly in the letters. It's implied. And our best example of dependence is Jesus. He's, he's God the Son. He's perfect. And yet, when you look at what He says, He says, I'm here on earth to do my Father's will what he told me to do. And he says, in fact, I enjoy it so much, it's like eating. It's like food. Pick your favorite food. Jesus says, it's like filet mignon to me. Or pizza, whatever it happens to be. He says, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear my father saying. For us, this dependence is an attitude, first, that doesn't trust ourselves, and secondly, we're leaning on God. We're depending on Him, delighting in His wisdom and all that He gives us. And then one other thing related to this. I think one of the reasons, among many, that Jesus described Himself, because at the beginning of every letter, He took one sentence and He talked about Himself. I think one of the reasons He did that was to remind us that we can trust Him, that He's God the Son, that he's the creator, that he's the ruler, that he's all-powerful, and that he loves us. So today, we get the privilege of celebrating God's gift to us in Jesus' life and death and resurrection with communion. Jesus, in his death, paid the penalty that we each owe to God. If you stop and think about it, that contains both an ugly truth and a beautiful truth. The ugly one, we deserve death. We deserve God's punishment because of our rebellion, yet Jesus died in our place. In his resurrection, Jesus gave us eternal life, but not only that, he gave us his record of perfect obedience. He gave us his spirit. He told his disciples, I'm leaving, and I'm going to send my spirit, and he did. So what we see and what we remember today is that God and Jesus did everything needed to reconcile us to himself, to adopt us as his children, and to love us. Let us delight in God's love for us. Let's pray. Lord, this has been a hard sermon because there's a lot of ugly truth in it about us, about our rebellious nature, about how so easily we get distracted and turn away. We'd rather have other things. We don't listen. But there's also beautiful truth. And we need both. Because reality is both. The ugly truth about us, the beautiful truth about you, and all that you have done, and how you love us and care for us. So Lord, help us to embrace your love for us. Help us to trust you, to delight in you, to be reminded of your truth. You're the one that walks with us day by day. We thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning as we come to the table, if you've received Jesus' gift, if you said, you know what, that ugly truth, that's me. Beautiful truth, that's God, and I need it.
and you've asked God, asked Jesus to forgive you. You've accepted his rescue, however you want to put that. And you've stated publicly, you've shared your trust in Jesus and you've been baptized. Then you're welcome to participate. If you are here and you're a Christian, but you've done some of the things we talked about. One of those is we put something else in front of God and we grab, we put it in a death grip, this desire, whatever it happens to be. God says this is an opportunity to open your hand. This is an opportunity for you to turn to God and say, God, you're right. Ugly truth, beautiful truth. And to be right with him. The request is this, don't refuse what God offers because you won't give up your desires. But if you're here today and God is a stranger to you, then he says don't participate, don't take this. But think about the amazing offer that God makes. He says because of our nature and what we, how we live out of our nature, we are his enemies. But he says while we were enemies, Christ died so that we could be reconciled. He offers forgiveness and reconciliation. So what we're going to do in just a second here is we're going to sing a song. And as we do, Larry, if you'll come forward, he's going to be releasing you. We ask you to come down this, the side aisles, pick up uh, one of the cups, and then return to your seat, and we will be taking the elements together. Remain seated as we sing together. Says bread, or oh, here is. 
So if you have not uh, used one of these before, there are two little plastic tabs. One is clear, light, very almost clear, light purple, and the other one darker and heavier. So go ahead and open up the top one and you'll find the little wafer. At that last Passover that Jesus celebrated, he took some bread and broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said that his body was going to be broken so that we, who are broken spiritually, could be made whole. This is his body, his, his life. Please eat. Then very carefully through the second tab for the juice. At that meal also, Jesus took one of the cups of the Passover and he gave it to his disciples saying this cup is the new covenant. And again, when you think of covenant, think of covenant relationship. It's a new covenant relationship that we can have with God through Jesus' blood, which was shed for the remission, for the payment. He paid what we could not. He paid what we owe. He gave his life so that we who were spiritually dead could have life. Drink all of it. Let's pray. Lord, would you remind us today, this week, as we go on from here, our need for you and your great love and how you provide everything we need. And you delight in us. Lord, help us to remember as we go and as we live. 